This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, April 9th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Defenders of the president and opponents of the special counsel now investigating allegations of Russian meddling in the last election say that much, if not all, of the evidence that Robert Mueller has gathered is tainted and won't be useful when and if further charges are brought. Cato Institute adjunct scholar David Post says those claims are pretty much precisely wrong. We spoke last week about whether or not Mueller's evidence is fruit from the poison tree. The reason we're talking is because uh, Chris Farrell, who is uh, one of the president's defenders when it comes to uh, the Mueller investigation, uh, recently tried to delineate this uh, idea of the fruit of the poisonous tree, and in doing so, tried to uh, make the claim that evidence that uh, Mueller has gathered in his investigation of Russian interference in the U.S. election, um, is it's all a whole lot of it is tainted because it all came from uh, similar sources. And if I understand your argument correctly, it is that even if we did suspect that strongly, now would be the com- a completely inappropriate time to make a judgment about whether or not that evidence is appropriate. Yeah. I- I, I think there were two sort of two prongs to that to the argument I was trying to make. One is that I think there was a misrepresentation in Farrell's argument about how the exclusionary rule and the fruit of the poisonous tree, how these doctrines um, of criminal procedure actually work. Um, it's not true that unlawfully obtained evidence, if there was unlawfully or improperly obtained evidence, um, that such evidence cannot be used in a subsequent criminal proceeding and the fruits of that evidence cannot be used. That is, anything that is derived from that improperly, uh, improperly or unlawfully obtained evidence cannot be used. His argument was that because of various things, the dossier, um, Peter Strzok's bias, um, other claims that were not clear to me, but but the whole this sort of a, the mess in the special counsel's office um, that taints everything. And he was not as qualified as you were, Caleb, in in saying that it's all the evidence that Mueller has collected is tainted um, because of those improprieties, and he should shut down the investigation uh, because what's the point of going forward if if he's not going to be able to to use everything? So that that's wrong on the law, um, and that's the first point. Um, it's wrong on the law in that unlawfully obtained evidence, improperly obtained evidence can, in fact, be used uh, in criminal proceedings. There are exceptions to that, um, important, critical exceptions to that um, when it comes to specific constitutional rights that the prosecutor has violated. You cannot use evidence or evidence derived from evidence that was collected pursuant, for example, to an unlawful search um, uh, violating the Fourth Amendment rights of the defendant or when the defendant ha- did not have access to counsel, um, violating the Fifth Amendment rights. Um, but improperly obtained evidence is used all the time. Uh, prosecutorial misconduct of various kinds is unfortunately a fact of life. Um, and we have various processes I'll talk about later, I hope, uh, for how we deal with that. But we don't just exclude all of the evidence that was improperly obtained. So even if we knew that uh, 
Peter Strzok began this investigation or filed a FISA warrant, you know, with a frenzy of hatred and bias against all Republicans and specifically Donald Trump, even if we knew that, that doesn't mean that we can't use evidence derived from that in Paul Manafort's criminal trial. Uh, it does not deprive him of a fair trial. It's not a violation of his constitutional rights that are involved. And so it's just not correct as a matter of law. Um, the, the, the exclusionary doctrine doesn't reach that far. But the larger point, I think, is that we don't know – this investigation takes place in secret um, and it should take place in secret. That's an important principle um, uh, that we don't – criminal investigations generally are uh, shielded from public view um, for very good reasons. Uh, there are inevitably leaks and a little bit comes out about this and a meeting that was held here and so-and-so's lawyer might have said this to Mueller and such and such happened before. Um, we get little dribs and drabs of it. But, the, you know, that's the elephant trying to figure out what the elephant looks like from little pieces of, of skin that we're, we're touching. We do not know what evidence I – mean, the, 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 we don't know what evidence – Mueller has collected. We do not know everyone that he has interviewed. We don't know certainly the content of those interviews. We don't know who has been named as possible for further investigation into possible wrongdoing. Um, uh, we're in a state of ignorance about that and to pretend otherwise, to pretend that we know enough at this point to say that the entire investigation is tainted because of the way they've used this evidence when we don't know how they've used this evidence. Um, we have some glimpses from public filings and that's important. And what we know from the public filings is what we know from the public filings. And there, there is a process in place by which the defendants um, in, in cases where indictments have been brought, where defendants can raise the points – uh, that Farrell was talking about to say um, this evidence was improperly uh, obtained and here's why and here's what happened and the other side makes its argument and a neutral arbiter makes that decision about whether it should be excluded. That's all in the future. We don't know what happened until we've gone through those processes. Um, and this is this sort of frenzy we're in now, this kind of trial by newspaper and internet innuendo um, that has people believing that they they actually know what Mueller's team is doing um, and who they're talking to and how they're getting evidence and what evidence they have is just um, I think it's destructive of the of the one of the important institutions um, that make up sort of our entire criminal process rule of law. Um, it's a very precious possession that we have that people are sort of thrown out the window, it seems to me. So what is the role of Congress here? Um, you know, we spoke offline before uh, we began recording and you thought, well, you know, this is a traditional role of Congress. Uh, Nunez, uh, uh, Representative Nunez uh, sort of, let's see, made a mess of things with the, the memo that didn't, that was somewhat laughable with respect to its contents. Well, I wouldn't go I, – I mean I wouldn't go quite so far as to say this is a traditional role for Congress. Congress has a role – you know, the, the, the general problem is to figure out what happened, <laughs> um, what happened with respect to any involvement by the Trump campaign in the Russian interference, what happened if you think there was impropriety in the investigation of those 
issues, what happened to constitute impropriety and what were the consequences of that. Um, those are complicated stories with uh, factual development that needs to be very carefully done um, and both sides have to be heard from and we have to lay it out on the table and try to piece together just the factual context of what actually happened. Congress can help with that and it does from time to time. It's part of – it can be part of the fact-finding process. Congressional investigations can illuminate all sorts of things. They have subpoena power. They can get people to come in and testify. They can prepare reports and saying we have investigated this matter. We all know this. And when they do it credibly, um, they help. Uh, they can help in, in uh, evaluating this sort of fundamental knowledge question about, about what exactly happened. I think the you – know, and they tried to do that in the House Intelligence Committee um, with the Nunez memo, which was a failure. Um, it did not you – know, it tried to make this claim that there was specific impropriety um, that took place in the investigation, specifically with respect to the, dossier, the use of the Steele dossier. Um, and that that was a critical failure and, and uh, uh, the, the FISA warrants were improperly obtained um, uh, and the entire, you know, everything that has, has uh, come out of the dossier was uh, um, uh, in, in, improper and the, the people that were investigated as a result of what was in the dossier um, were improperly investigated, et cetera. That turned out to be, to put it mildly, baloney. Um, uh, they did, just didn't – they didn't persuade the American public and they should not have persuaded given the work that they did, uh, that they actually fairly laid out the facts. Um, they didn't hear from the other side among other things. I mean they failed in their – they did not show a copy of their memo that they released to the public to the FBI alleging specific improprieties. They did not let the FBI come in and say here's our explanation for what happened. I mean that alone – strikes me as that's just a failure of the investigative process. It's not how you do things um, if you are actually trying to get at the facts. So I don't believe what they came up with on the facts um, uh, because of that. And secondly, of course, as it turned out, their major claim that the dossier – well, there are two major claims that the dossier was critical in beginning the process of surveillance um, on Carter Page specifically uh, and that – um, uh, th there was uh, omissions in the FISA warrants with respect to the dossier. Both of those turned out to be incorrect. The surveillance on page had begun way before the dossier was a gleam in anybody's eye. Um, and secondly, it turned out that it was disclosed <laughs> in the FISA warrant. It was in a footnote, which of course Devin Nunez didn't read or something, um, uh, that there was a political – there was political money behind the dossier. So that which could have helped us sort of process the question of possible impropriety on the part of the FBI in the course of this investigation, which we need to do before we can then evaluate what are the consequences of that impropriety? What do we do now with it? They failed in that. I don't know that there was impropriety. I have not seen that case laid out. There are processes for that. There is now an, uh, an inspector general investigation that is going to take place. Fine. Um, let's see what they come up with with that and if there is a case to be made that there was serious impropriety on the part of what the FBI did. We certainly need to know about that. We should know about that. 
Um, and then we can evaluate what does that say about, for example, the evidence that has been collected by the Mueller investigation when we see what that evidence is in a court proceeding somewhere down the line. So it's all that's, a, that's that you mean when when Mueller tries to make use of this information Correct. in order to punish someone in court. Correct. That's what um, you know. We can have a separate proceeding against if there again. You know, I, I looked at the special counsel statute and regulations in preparation for this podcast. I uh, looked at it again, and there is a specific uh, provision in there that says that the. Uh, employees of the special counsel are subject to Justice Department rules and regulations and the disciplinary proceedings um, uh, that the Justice Department has set up for any improprieties. So, okay, uh, I would have assumed that anyway. But so we have – so there's there's one question about should we punish the people who behaved improperly? And there are processes for that, for deciding that. And if there's been improper behavior, they can go on in terms of punishment. And then in terms of – what do we do about the investigation? That is, what do we do with all this evidence that Mueller has collected possibly tied to this improperly obtained material? Um, that will wait and should wait until the proper time to be resolved. And the proper time when that gets resolved is when Mueller comes into court and says, I'm indicting so-and-so and here's the evidence that I have. And the defense lawyer gets to say, wait a second, you can't use that. Um, because of this impropriety and the fruit of the poisonous tree and my constitutional rights would be would have been violated and uh, uh, my client will not be able to get a fair trial. Um, and to argue about that, it's fun to talk about it, I guess, but I think it's 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 sort of destructive of to 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 talk about it as if we know what happened. Um, I I think is is sort of deeply flawed in in some way. Uh, so if you if I understand you correctly, your view is that one, there are a lot of people talking out of school with respect to uh, what we know and don't know and what we can say is tainted or not tainted within the the Mueller investigation. And uh, as you noted, the uh, attorney general has uh, launched a an investigation from the by the inspector general to to find out what the FBI may or may not have done wrong. But the fact that the fact that this is this is quite a quite a common refrain among people who are willing to defend the president uh, on this matter, that uh, this is, in a sense, an attack on institutions. Yeah, it's attack on, on, on how facts get found in this society, facts about improper behavior and possibly criminal behavior. It harkens back, for me, to what I thought was the most disturbing uh, part of the 2016 election. Um, which was the the the, the chanting the, the locker up chants, um, the crooked Hillary chants, um, and, and that was disturbing to me. Not just, yeah, no, 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 I take things too seriously, and it was just sort of for fun, and it's revving up the crowd, and it's like a football game or something where you're just charging people up with partisan stuff, and that goes on uh, uh, all the time. But to choose that to rile people up, lock her up, um, we have a you know, a, institutions and processes very precious that are the product of, you know, 800 years of common law development and that people have di literally died for um, to uh, how we handle the criminality. Um, we have investigations. We have indictments. Uh, we have grand juries that look at the indictments. We have judges that look at the indictments. We have trials. We have adversary process. We have counsel. 
We have the beyond the reasonable doubt standard. And then and only then do we know whether someone should be locked up. Um, and to just sweep that aside as if it didn't, it's just a joke. Um, that it's all rigged. We, can, we know what happened. We know that Hillary behaved illegally and should be locked up. I, I think that is an attack on the rule of law. I, I genuinely believe that. Um, and I think this attack on the Mueller investigation is part of that same theme. We don't need to have all this investigative stuff and indictments and blah, blah, blah. We know what what's going on behind the curtain. We know the true facts. We know that the campaign didn't do anything. There was no collusion. We know that the FBI was tainted and biased and there's a conspiracy. We know all that just because we know it uh, somehow. And the, this leak and that leak and this guy said this and this guy said that. And we come up with this narrative based on this trickle of information and completely ignore the hard-won processes that we have set up to determine whether people have behaved, determine whether FBI agents have behaved improperly, to determine whether criminal activity has taken place. Um, and I think that's – I think people who care about the rule of law and we all should care about the rule of law for many reasons um, should be very disturbed by this. Um, how, whatever you think of Trump and immigration reform and the wall and tariffs and all the other policy issues um, about which we can disagree. Um, I, I don't think we, we really can disagree about the importance of these institutions and processes for the maintenance of, of law in the society. And these, this is an attack on those, uh, on those institutions. And I know everybody celebrates sort of norm breaking and um, you know, this sort of sweeping everything aside uh, in, in order to bring in this sort of, you know, everything else is rotten and here's a new way we're going to be doing things. Um, but I think we throw those things out at our deep, deep peril. David Post blogs at the Vola Conspiracy and is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>